Okay, welcome everyone to another episode of Gabbing Gauchos. I'm here with Matt Eisen, coach of the UCSB team and CTS triathlon coach. Actually, you know what? I actually said CST last time, which is really funny because uh, there's an electronics package called CST Microwave Studio. And so for some reason, I can't say CTS. It's like some weird thing. And we're also here with a professional triathlete and masterful uh, curly hair guy, (laughs) Sean Harrington. Big Sean Harry. Big Sean Harry, follow him on Instagram. And we will, we've got three subjects to talk about today. The first thing that we will talk about is what's going on with collegiate triathlon. So we've got an upcoming triathlon season. Um, we'll have some conference news and what the UCSB team is up to, as well as uh, our own Matt Eisen's race in Kona. Those are the Ironman World Championships, for those of you who are not familiar with that race. That is a full distance triathlon, so we'll get to hear what that was like. And I don't know if any of you saw the really funny videos of Matt practically falling down the stairs afterwards, but we'll get his impressions on that. And then we'll talk about how the pros did in the World Championships and how that's going to affect things moving forward. So let's kick this off with what's going on with the UCSB team, Matt. Uh, I don't know. I haven't been here for a week. <laughs> So does that mean it's all gone to crap and uh, the team is no longer training? Well, the first practice I went to after Sean had been filling in, uh, we had not a single female at the practice. So it's not my fault. That was disturbing, but I'm just I'm just kidding. It was Friday. They don't come on Fridays. There was females there. They were in the small pool. There were two uh, freshman girls in the small pool, but the big pool was a sausage fest. So how big are the swim workouts these days? 3K for the big pool. Um, no number good. of people. Oh, number of people. We probably had 25 on Friday. Yeah. Maybe 30. We were doing even better than that, actually, while Matt was at, in Kona. We were, we were getting 35, 40 people showing up. Well, that's a pretty good turnout, especially as it starts to get a little bit colder in the mornings. Oh, yeah. And the kids are all getting sick and having their exams, and the freshmen are realizing that they can't do every club on campus. So I expect a little... I mean, we had like 80 people the first couple of practices so you're not going to keep that up for sure but i want to say the first year we had between 20 and 30 and last year it was right around 30 for most so as long as we just move up from there it's all good so who'd you leave in charge when you were away and you know leaving the island life big sean harry yep everyone got to enjoy uh coach big sean harry for a few days so what's your style uh pretty laid back i guess (laughs) (laughs) not so different than matt's (laughs) So did Matt write the workouts and then you just executed them or did you make up anything on your own? A little of both. Um, swim workouts, I think Matt wrote most of them for me. Um, and then I got to write one run workout and me and Matt kind of uh, came up with a bike workout together. And did uh, the team get their first look at OSM? Uh, yeah, that was the one me and Matt came up to together. <laughs> um, although actually it was all veterans that showed up for that part of it. Um, but you know, all the new people got to do a little bit of uh, the same workout, but on the spin bikes. So we were doing five-minute intervals. Um, so That sounds to... like death. Yeah, it was, it was fun. <laughs> fun? Was that was it air quotes, or uh, is that actually legit? I don't know. I haven't got to do it. I was looking back since, like, April or February. It's been a long so, time, yeah. Yeah, and uh, and so I was, I was enjoying it. It looked like people were suffering a little, but uh, uh, I heard – I talked to uh, Rick, one of the – juniors i guess on the juniors team. second yeah. year on the team juniors eligibility and he uh he he was looking for a hard workout and he was very satisfied with what he got so 
So what is it about this time of year that brings around the five-minute intervals that you haven't been able to do for quite some time? We got uh, our first race coming up soon, so maybe give a, a little, you know, short uh, interval training just to try to, you know, if people want to be a little bit more race-ready for it, they could be, although it's not a high-priority race, so we're not too concerned how people are doing. It's really easy to control the kids on an out-and-back segment like that, where Sean can be doing a workout and he can still see everyone 10 times. Yeah, if it's five, mm-hmm. he'll see everybody 10 times. So it's just much easier to make it feel like a group workout, even if they're riding alone or in pairs. Yeah. If everyone's doing different paces, it doesn't matter because you go five minutes out and you turn around. So if someone goes twice as far, when we get back to the start, we're all back together. Yeah. Oh, so even if you may feel like you're a little bit slower on the bike, you still get to feel like you're there participating. With yeah, everyone. you start with everybody on every interval. Yeah. That's super nice. Was yeah. that out on Glen Annie? OSM. That was OSM. Oh, on OSM. You already okay. asked that. Oh. Pay attention. All right, well, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you go. You guys do uh, Glen Annie so often that it's hard to know on any given day if yeah. it's not going to be Glen Annie. We'll probably do some Glen Annie races, I hope. Although maybe uh, uh, so many young we'll kids. see. We'll see how the neighborhood association likes that. <laughs> Back to Hope Ranch. Yeah. Well, Hope Ranch has its own set of dangers because it gets wet in the mornings in the wintertime. Oh yeah, every time we've done a hard workout in Hope Ranch, it's been soaking wet, like soaking wet every time we've done it. Yeah, you gotta be yeah. careful in the shadows, especially. Hmm. It dries up a lot. Or slower. near Gordon. <laughs> well, Gordon's off and living his best life right now, so yeah. we won't see him for a while. So what do we have coming up on the schedule in the collegiate season? Trick or try. It's not even a, really a collegiate race. It's just our starter race. Um, do we but, put that on? No. Um, it's out in Pasadena. I can't remember the race organization. Yeah, it's just a little. They do a sprint, an Olympic, and a half. And it's really nice. I don't make any money off of selling this for them, but... Uh, it's completely closed course. It's one of the only courses you're going to do that is completely closed to traffic. And it's not really on a bike path because even though it is a, technically a bike path, it's converted from a road. So it's super wide. It's not like a bike path when you think of a traditional bike path. It used to be a road and now it's not. It's just a really freaking wide bike path. So you don't have to deal with any cars. You get room to meander around and they do all the distances and they do it about as cheap as any race you're going to get in California. And, and the swim's actually pretty short for the sprint. I think it's shorter than a normal sprint. It's like 300? Yeah, yeah, so it's it's a really good distance for new people to mm-hmm. that are a little intimidated by a longer swim. Wow, that's awesome. Have you um, have you sold this to, well, not sold, but have you told all of the team about this yet? We've tried, but they don't like to spend money, so we'll see how many people go. Do they have a college discount? Um, yes and no. It's a... Uh, it's not direct money back. It's more related to how many volunteers we can provide. So the more volunteers we provide, the more money we get back from entry fees. So everybody pays the full price, and then if we bring 20 volunteers, we get X amount of dollars back, and then we can give that to the kids who registered, um, which seems like a good idea. From their standpoint, seems like a really brilliant idea because now I'm going to volunteer. <laughs> right, yeah. So yeah. when, when again was that race? The 27th. Uh, October, October, October 27th. Okay, so yeah, that's next weekend already. Yeah. Next weekend. Wow. All right. So that's coming up fast. And then let's see, are there any college races in November? I think there's an aquathon. Yeah. At UCLA. I think you mean a quathlon. A quathlon? That sounds a like quathlon. something a duck would say. <laughs> a quackthon? <laughs> a quackthon. Um, 
yeah, I think there's one of those I might see if we want to go to, um, especially if the turnout for Trick or Try isn't super high because the kids don't want to pay that much up front and then maybe get money back. Um, but for the most part, we don't race until Triton Man. Have you heard of anyone wanting to do the Century or anything like that, SB Century? Oh, I'm sure a bunch of them will do it. Well, the SB um, Century is canceled this year. That's what it? I was wondering, uh, if the course, since it was messed up, if that was... Because I hadn't heard anything about it. So oh. It makes sense if it's canceled. I'm sure we can get a group to go do it. Yeah. But as far as triathlon, triathlons, this will be it for the fall. And then pretty much race for six straight weeks and um, starting late January or mid-January. Now, did there used to be hits or something in Palm Springs in November? Um... I think there still is, as as I understand, it's a seventy point three now, and also hits, and the seventy point three is like the weekend before, just to make sure that hits goes completely out of business. Yeah, because um, Ironman bought or either bought or is putting on a race like the, the weekend, weekend before. before. Yeah, yeah, I've heard both that either they bought hits or that they're putting on. I think what it is is they're putting on yeah. a race right before to hopefully push hits the rest of the way out of business oh that's so sleazy yeah but either way those are so expensive um we probably won't have collegiate you know undergrads doing those races but i'll right. be racing there so. yes yeah, sean will be there oh, you will okay some uh grad some alumni that's the word will be there mm-hmm. will there be any other professionals do you think hopefully not yeah. That was a joke. <laughs> <laughs> Makes the money easier. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so it actually pays out. And yeah, it pays as a professional. Yep. Awesome. So it's a $25,000 prize purse. Nice. Mm-hmm. And how much for first place? Is that about 6000 something like that? I don't remember. So it's, it's 12 and a half to men and 12 and a half to women. I think about half goes to the winner. Well, that's actually pretty significant if it's 50% men and 50% women because historically triathlon has had this issue where you know the prize money is not equally split between the the men's field and the women's field so it's kind of cool to see that it's more equitable now it's been equally split at least the last five years um it's at least the last five years it's been perfectly equally split um I think more the issue that they're dealing with right now is women don't get as many world championship slots so that would be, um, whether it's age group or pro, they do it as what they say is a representation of the total number. So there were 47, 48 guys in the pro field at Kona and 35 women in the pro field at Kona. Um, and then likewise in the age group race, there were 1,700 guys and 700 women. There are about 700 women. Um they fix that in the 70.3 by having two separate races on two days. They have a women's race, which has about 3,000 people in it, and a men's race that has about 3,000 people in it. Um, but at Kona, there's still a discrepancy. Yeah, it's got to cost a huge amount of money to put on separate races, especially in a place like Hawaii. Yeah, I don't see that happening. Um, I think there's too much of an allure of the one-day like televised race thing, too, in Kona. But we'll, I mean, if they think they can make money off of it, they'll do it. I just don't know. I don't. I don't really have any inside information on if that's going to happen yeah. or not. So bringing it back to the how the collegiate season is going to play out. So the first kind of official WCCTC uh, race of the season is going to be down in San Diego for Triton Man. Is that right? Yeah, it's a big race. We and get. A, yeah. do, they, do they have a uh, a draft legal race there this year? They again? do. They do. It's kind of like a festival um, where you have two days of racing, and at least in 
before I started coaching at UCSB, it was a big deal. And then the last couple of years, it's been kind of small because they haven't had the draft legal, but they're bringing the draft legal back. So they usually get people from Arizona, Colorado, Nevada to take kind of a winter vacation and come out and yeah. race. The The last year that I did the draft legal race, which I think was 2015, maybe. Um, it, I mean, it was tons of pros even showed up. It was like a, a legitimate good draft legal race. So. Yeah, because that was one of the only places in California that you could do a draft legal race as mm-hmm. an amateur, especially. Mm-hmm. I think I did it the first year that they offered it because I was like, wow, this sounds really fun. And it I know is. that I'm a fast <laughs> swimmer. And so I should be able to at least, you know, sort of participate for the first part of the race. So who on the UCSB team do you expect to race in the draft legal this year? Um, The guys, it's. The guys, if anything, we have more guys um, wanting to do it than we have spots for at Nationals. Um, Gordon, Rick, there are a couple of new people. Um, Anyway, but in the women's, it's more of the girls who are I'm going to make do it don't necessarily want to do it. So we'll see how that works out. Um, The nice thing is they only have to do one to kind of check off that they've completed one. And then at nationals, we can like discuss who wants to actually do the draft legal race at nationals. Will Triton Man limit how many entries we get? I don't know. Because if um, they don't limit, then you might as well, everyone that could possibly be interested, send them there. Yeah, they're going to have, so we have a draft legal at Triton Man, we have one at Stanford, and then we have one more. There's a new one, and I can't remember the school that's doing it. Hmm. There is another, it might be UCLA, because they've moved their race to um, oh, the Trinker location. So I think there there are three opportunities for them to check that box on a draft legal race. So it's not really a concern if they don't if they can't make it all the way down to San Diego because honestly driving to San Diego from here on Friday afternoon takes like it took us like eight and a half hours last time. So oh, that sounds miserable. Really want to do it? Yeah. Could, could uh, Cal Poly ever put on a draft legal race associated with conference? Or would that be uh, logistically a nightmare? Um, it's a money thing. So it all comes down to it's all a money thing. And we had a discussion of this at among the coaches at Collegiate Nationals. And it's just bottom line, like we put on races to make money for our clubs. And USAT, one of the frustrations is USAT wants us to put on more draft legal races but won't fund them. And for the most part, everybody loses money when they put on a draft legal. Like nobody's making money off of it because the field size is limited to about 70 people. And you have to close the roads. You have to close the roads and you have to have a certain number of USAT certified referees, which are not cheap because you're paying for their motorcycles. You're paying for their travel. All of that's like, you're losing money. Um, I don't think there was a single school that said they had come close to making money at a draft legal race. So they're dying. Um, but that's just so I don't see I don't I don't know why they're adding one this year unless there's just a surplus of money and a school wants to try it out or they got in some good deal on like the trick or try course that makes it more affordable. But they're very, very difficult to make money on. It doesn't make sense that they wouldn't help fund it because at nationals there's a draft legal race. So why wouldn't you want to have during the year draft legal races that kids can check out? I mean the vibe I got at the meeting is it's like every other corporate meeting. You've got a, the USAT collegiate director. It is his or her job to tell us to do these things, whether or because from above, 
she's being told to tell or he's being told to tell us to do these things whether or not it's feasible like this is just this is just like the corporate structure like you need to get people to do this whether or not it's in their best interests right like you need to get your employees to do something for that makes money for you whether or not it's in the employee's best interest um and the trickle down effect is we end up being the employees or the coaches or the schools so i don't i mean there just doesn't seem to be a, an interest in dispersing their funds towards collegiate club racing especially when they've dumped so much into the ncaa startup program so do you think it's in the cards for ucsb to have a draft legal race at some point in the future not in the next 10 years um there's just no i mean if you do the math on it it if we get 300 people, we make like $3,000 on our um, Kinder's race, and that's with a bare-bones course. And then we're looking at paying close to $10,000 to put on a draft legal race on another day. So right there, we're in the whole seven grand, and we might have 70 people enter that race. Like, that's about the most we're going to be able to fit on a course. Um, so you can't charge that much for those, no, otherwise the collegians won't come. Yeah, so you're just, it's just a money hole. And the only way to feasibly, this is, this is honest to goodness, what USAT's advice was, find a race director that you can piggyback off of. And they didn't outright say, let the race director be the one that loses money, but that's what was implied. And there was a race director in the room, and he stood up and said, I've been doing this for the Western, the like Mountain Conference for several years, and I can't do it anymore been doing it out of the goodness of my heart but i lose a few thousand dollars every year so you might be able to get away with that one year on a race director but then they're going to realize i lost 5k to help these college kids out and they can't that's not sustainable but that was usat's advice so why does the field have to be so small usat rules it's all usat rules same with the refs like i can't go referee it myself on a bike we have to pay this guy to fly out from colorado or get him a motorcycle like what you have to have certified referees um both swim bike run to be out there and i suppose you can't do waves that doesn't really make sense in draft legal because you need the ability to lap people out and they're not directly racing against each other and there was a straight up just straight up fee to put on a draft legal race. And I can't remember, I don't want to misquote the number, but there's just like, you want to run a draft legal race? Here, you have to write us a check for this much money up front. And then we'll talk about you running a draft legal race. Sounds like a racket. Oh, it definitely is. But it's working out because it's just not that important except to a couple of schools. And it's just collegiate triathlon. Like, it's not a big money maker. Like, whether we get fifth at nationals or ninth, like, who really... Like, it's not changing lives, so right. I don't worry about it. So as far as the collegiate season goes, then, so we've got draft legal and regular triathlons the first week in San Diego, and then who's next? Oh, it's just a cluster. I don't remember the order, but we go basically six weeks in a row um, where every school in our conference puts on a race, and we just go boom, 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 boom. So we've got and San Diego, we've got Irvine, UCLA. Berkeley. Does- does I mean, USC, no, Stanford. Does Stanford. USC put on one anymore? Can't remember. They used Stanford, to put one on in Oxnard. Yeah. They used to, well, they kind of piggybacked with a race director in the fall, Trick or Try, um, or PDR. So they did kind of a conglomerate. Um, 
but then we have ours and then we have a week off and then we do conference. Um, so it's really six out of seven weeks that we race. So what's the date of our race this year? It's like the 11th. And how does that relate to spring break? 11th of March. It is. So before or after? It's before. So mark your calendars. Make sure you're in town. Don't leave. Don't skip town before uh, doing our race. Normally um, conferences the first weekend of spring Spring break. break. Yeah, that's right. So it's well before um, March 11th. It's basically, for those of you in SB, it is basically the Goleta Beach Triathlon course um, just moved up onto campus. So you're on a bike path for almost the whole thing. Um, It's a good little first. So you're actually changing the course then, because last year I think it was like loops around the airport, or was that the previous year? Well, you're on a bike path for like 60% of it, or 60% of the miles, but you end up, yeah, going down Hollister and Fairview to connect the bike path on campus if that makes sense because yeah Canaros so it is, is the same one. bike path yeah well that's a really it, fast course because it's super flat and it's it just is. like four right turns basically and the bike path it has some like stuff you have to navigate though so i wouldn't call it technical but it definitely slows you down mm-hmm. yeah it's a good spring race and for experienced racers like honestly it's just a good way to go out and have a big group race and support your local school and support the college kids because that is our number one moneymaker is that race. And we, for a number of years before I was here, there wasn't a bike course for a while um, because you, you know, you have to spend money to make money. So the first year I was here, we were like, well, we'll just risk losing a bunch of money to try and have a bike course. And we put the money in and then it turns out, Hey, you all signed up and we had 300 people and we made money. So we did it again last year. We had 300 people sign up, and we make money. So as long as people come, we'll be able to have a real triathlon instead of a swim run. So would you encourage any parents of new students to come do the race? It's the best way to spectate. Just come do it while you're out there. And, of course, it's beautiful in Santa Barbara in March. Oh, it is perfect. We've we've had perfect conditions for two years. Yeah, it's it's just past that typical rainy window of January and February. And it's an ocean swim, which you won't find that many of, especially if you're from out of state. And last year, the swim was canceled because of runoff. But if it if it is all if it's at all risky that the ocean swim is going to be canceled, we're going to move it to the pool. And we have a 50 meter pool, and we do that like two weeks out from the race date. We decide like if there's a chance we're not going to have a swim for two years in a row, then we'll just move it to the pool. We have a 50 meter pool, so it makes it very very simple. Would you snake swim that or yeah? And because it's a 50-meter pool, it's we can get in like a 600-meter swim very easily with a snake swim. So make sure to bring your goggles. Yeah. We will have a swim. Plan is to have it in the ocean, but if we have to, we'll move it to the pool instead of canceling it. Oh, that's great to hear. Yeah. How many, I don't know if this is too out there, but how many Ironmans this year had their swims canceled? seemed like half but that's not accurate at all (laughs) it's just the ones you hear about it is happening more often um fog the most common reason well fog flooding a lot of them are in rivers to give people a downstream point-to-point swim especially yeah a lot of them are in rivers now um and of course if you do it in a river and there's a big storm two days beforehand the river's running too fast um so that's been an issue hurricane what's her face cancel to swim um it's happening and they yeah the worst thing for your business to have somebody pass away while they're 
you know, using your product, right? So they got to be really, really, really careful. And I understand that. But for the most part, they try. The race directors do try very hard. Even at Ironman Florida, they're moving the entire race like 300 miles down from the panhandle of Florida to Orlando to put on the race. And they're doing it in a two-week period. Wow, that's incredible. Imagine the bureaucratic nightmare that must have caused. Oh, it's got to be a nightmare. And like the people that are actually doing it, like not just the race director, but you know everybody underneath him, it's got to be like a 100-hour work week for two straight weeks to get that done. Yeah, that's crazy. So has has Kona ever had to cancel their swim? Nope. Ocean, baby. <laughs> so now I remember there was a little bit of talk right before your race that the ocean was a little bit choppier than normal, but that turned out not to be the case on race day. Is that right? It had definitely calmed down. There was a big swell. When we got there, me and Elka were kind of like, disappointed because we couldn't really play in the water because the breakers were too big it's very it's lava bottom um so you need to have a calm swell which it normally is for you to gently get out in the water you just get cut up and then we swam the course and it was it was rough on thursday and then on friday i didn't even bother to try and get in the ocean and then on the morning it was a lot better it was still the biggest swell i'd seen on race day to give us some perspective how big was the swell? It's not chop. It's not at all chop. It's like six to eight foot swell in the ocean. So it's a big, you sight and you you just see water and then you wait until you feel like you've risen quite a bit and then you sight again to try and see what's going on. I think, never believe the commentators because they're not, <laughs> just in general, but um, it's just, yeah, it's hard to tell, I think, unless you're in it, but the swell was big um it was big once we were out in in the ocean now i've swam there once before in a different context and the thing that was a little bit maddening to me was you can see the bottom we the the ocean is very clear and so when there's swell and you can see the bottom you can see how darn slow you're going so but you said that you didn't actually see the bottom during the race not the water because of the three or four days of big swell the water was murky another disappointing it didn't get clear until like the day before we left and elka went snorkeling um but like two years ago when i pre-swam the course that was true i'd be looking at the bottom and i'd accelerate like four feet forward and then move two feet to the left and then like a foot back and then accelerate four feet forward and then move left and you're looking at the bottom um but it was way too uh you also don't start you start like 200 meters out so it's already fairly deep and then it was just couldn't see couldn't see the bottom my whole swim wait so kona's in deep water start you yes. don't run in deep water start no the beach is way too small i mean we had 1700 guys start at the same time yeah in so water did they start. did they line you up kind of like at nationals where they've got some kind of bulkhead and they line you up horizontally and you got to grab onto the bulkhead or was it just kind um, of like tread it's just water kind of chaos it's tread water so you get out it is it is chaos. Like you get the beach is very small. If you can, the beach is very, very shockingly small when you're there. I don't know if it surprised you, but you look at it on camera. The beach is like the size of a bedroom. Yeah, like it's like sand. twenty feet wide, and then yeah. it's a little triangle. Yeah, the sand part is like as long as your bedroom is, and they funnel seventeen hundred guys in, and everybody has been lined up for about half an hour because you don't want to be the last one in, and you swim out, and then you just tread water in this massive group for 20 25 minutes and 
I've got I've still got bruises on my legs because you're egg beater kicking people and people just keep coming up from behind and pushing and surging forward and they have the paddleboarders going back and forth in front of us like they'll yell something at where your group is to move back and then you'll look over and where the paddleboarder just left that part of the line has moved up 10 or 15 feet so it just keeps surging surging and you can probably see that on the coverage we probably surged forward like 25 yards in the last minute before it started and then if you've ever, if you can picture this, if you have like a box of toothpicks and they're all standing upright and then you let them fall onto the table and they all fall down, that's what the start is like. Like as soon as you lay down, your face is on somebody's heels and your heels are on somebody's face for 10 rows deep. It was terrible. How many rows of people were there? About? There were at least 10, 10-ish wow. where I was, but... Probably only the first four rows are like swimming hard at the start, um, and you're just kind of like you're just kind of looking for room. What row did you start in? One and a half, two maybe. Good, good start. So, do they send the pros off separately? Yeah, they do. Okay, so the pros didn't have to deal with any of this stuff. The pro swim is probably a lot gentler and a lot better than the age group swim. Do they all fit in one line? Oh yeah, they spread out. They normally just get in two groups or three groups with a fast swimmer at the lead of each group. And it's very, it seems very organized and calm. Like they're all very accepting of where they belong. And in the age group swim, um, in fact, the only thing, the only thing that I could not find anywhere when I was researching and trying to be prepared for this race as I could is it's not swim hard for 300 or 400 it's if you want to have your best swim there and you're prepared for a 4K swim, you have to go 2K extremely hard. Because I went like 400 pretty hard and then settled in and just got the shit beat out of me until we turned the turnaround point. And then from the turnaround point home, all the guys that went out way too hard were just like a wall of people swimming, going from swimming 120 pace to 140 pace. And I could have backstroked in. Um I mean, it was, I was getting really, really frustrated because I would swim with one arm at time. You're just so boxed in and I don't want to run over the person in front of me and get kicked in the face. So you just, you swim with one, I would do three or four strokes with one arm, three or four strokes with the, with the other arm. Um, I don't know how much time I lost coming back in, but if I had swam at like a half Ironman and even if I had essentially popped, I probably would have saved a six. I mean, if I do the race again, I will swim to that boat as if you don't have to get back from the boat because everybody did just kind of blow up, which they also did in the bike and the run. But So I assume you didn't blow up in the swim. So no. The swim went pretty well for you. Other um, than just bruising. I, my hat looked like a yarmulke by the time <laughs> I got out of the water because somebody's elbow would hit my forehead and just move it up. And then they'd hit my forehead and it would move it back and back. And it was caught under my goggle straps. So now in, so this is a full Ironman. So you're going to be on the bike for a really long time. Do you take any extra precautions? Do you have like a relatively chill T1 or are you hurrying to get out of there? Um, I was trying to get out of T1. The other the other thing, I came out of the water like 200 and something. I could not get through T1 any faster than the guy in front of me, than the guy in front of him. It was a single file line trying to get through. Um, the other thing about Kona, it is so much smaller than it looks on TV. Like that pier is so much smaller and you're just packed in. There was nowhere to go around. So I bet if you look at the top 
300 guys, our T1 times are all within 10 seconds of each other. There's just no way to get around anybody. Um, so you're kind of just stuck. And then that's it. I would have rushed through to try and get into, to try and see if I there was, you, you mark like 10 guys in the race that you want to ride with. And if somebody outswam me by 30 seconds and I can close 30 seconds on T1 so I can ride for four and a half hours with them, you know, that would be the goal. But there was none of that. So then did you immediately settle into your pace on the bike or were you trying to kind of split up a group or were you trying to surge a little bit to get away from people? What's your strategy coming out of T1? I immediately did my own thing. And I think I was the only fucking person in the race that was doing his own thing for the first, like, it's really, for the first um, half hour, I got passed by at least a hundred people. And even guys I knew, and I talked about like, discussing before the race other race rookies and we're like hey the smart guys say everybody's gonna just be hauling ass for the first hour and you have to do your own thing and they'll come back to you my buddies would go by me and i'd be like dude you know i don't want to be an ass right then but i'm kind of like you know dude you should probably like i'm going i'm going pretty hard and you're going like five miles an hour faster than me right now and they all just did it um i don't know the people who didn't do it because they didn't pass me but I could not believe, and I went back and I looked at Strava, and um, for most of my, the people I knew, I rode 439, and then a lot of guys that I ended up finishing close to at the end rode 435, and um, according to Strava segments, I gave all of that, all of those four or five minutes up in the first 20 miles, um, because they were just jamming, but then even split or had like a top 10 overall age group bike split from mile 50 in um it was really unbelievable to look around and i do this in halves sometimes but to just look at somebody at mile 40 and know like they have no chance of holding this pace like you look at their face and they're just but they're still doing it and in kona it was just hundreds of those people in a race like kona most of those guys gotta be riding with power too they're definitely riding with power but the other thing was just the epic drafting um and people like you go into a race like that knowing it's going to happen and you just kind of accept it but the big takeaway is maybe one person beat me by blatantly drafting but i think the vast majority of the people that finish in the top 20 or so of their age group the drafters are riding too hard to stay with a group and they get blown up anyway so anybody the drafting i saw was people that were overdoing it to try and stay with a group that was going too fast and kind of feeding itself. So they just constantly pass each other and the group goes faster and faster and faster. And then kaboom at like, if not at mile 50, then certainly at the last climb at like mile 80. I mean, I felt like the fastest guy on course 80 miles in. So now in in previous episodes, we've talked about drafting in long course races and 70.3 races, specifically that, you, there is a legal draft in these kinds of races because, you know, three bike lengths away at 20 miles an hour or 25 miles an hour for most of you guys is actually enough that you still get, what, 10, 15% benefit from that? Probably. Maybe not that much. Yeah, but I would say like 15 watts. Yeah. So when you say drafting, are you talking about that sort of drafting or are you talking about the other kind of drafting there that you see no. in Ironman where people are literally drafting and doing big group types, types of things? I... Maybe somebody in that race did not get inside the draft zone for at some point, but there was no... We're talking like three wide. Um, 
just three wide for minutes and guys like so the ref refs were everywhere they were everywhere but there's only so much they can do um guys i'd look up the road and there'd be a guy a foot off of someone else's wheel and they'd be looking over their shoulder every 30 seconds or so and boom when they would clear out i'd look back and there'd be a ref coming up the road um it was just it was all in like all in and this is again it's not it's probably not everyone but it's nine out of ten people and even like the super um guys i respect you know at some point so my my experience was i catch a group of 20 i go through the group and there's a dude somebody in the group is literally six inches off of my wheel as i go through the group i pull to the right he goes immediately by me i try and give him space and within seconds, all 20 people I passed go by me because I just gave that one guy that passed me more than a bike length and all 20 are by me. So my whole race experience was look for a group that's like a quarter mile up the road, do three or 400 watts for three to five minutes, get to the back of that group, sit off the back of it because you don't like, I don't want a penalty, sit off the back of it and recover for however long it takes then see where the next group is and just do three, 400 watts to the next group, sit off and jump groups. And I did that for maybe an hour and then it did blow up. Like it just kaboom. And it was single file strung out for the last 50 miles of the race. And that's because the people in those groups finally got tired enough that they couldn't hang on anymore. And the aid stations get really crazy when there's a group of 30 guys, three wide, um, Another thing I would recommend is stop reading Slow Twitch, and they love to shame people that have bottles on their frame. I ran both bottles on my frame and one in between, and it gave me the flexibility to, if an aid station was clear, I completely reload, and then I could skip two. And I would, I'd go through a whole group of people as they're clamoring and coming almost to a halt to get stuff at an aid station because they only have one bottle on their bike and they have to get something at every single aid station. So what's this? I haven't, I don't really read slow twitch. Do they say that all of your fluid should be like between your handlebars or something? Basically it's the aerodynamic stuff. So like you should have a bottle between the bars and then a bottle behind your seat. But the thing with the bottle, if you watch the live coverage, you watched Lucy Charles and several other pros just completely F up trying to put a new bottle behind their seat because it's very difficult to reach. I've I've coached athletes who have crashed and ended their races because they were trying to get a bottle in or out of the behind their seat. Um, and again, we're talking like theoretical 30 seconds saved over the course of 112 miles with no drafting and going 25 miles an hour to not have a bottle on your frame in a race where the average temperature is like 81 degrees from the time you start to the time you finish and 100% humidity. So what was the weather like for this Kona race? Um, The winds were super calm, so there's no doubt. Like, If I went 8.54 any other year, almost any other year, I would be the overall amateur winner. Um, But every age group record fell, and it was all, it was 100% on the bike. The swim was hard. The run was extra hot because we didn't have a wind, so the run times were a little slow, I think, in general. But the bike, I mean... It's probably 15 minutes difference without the wind. It was hot. But again, it's relative heat. The highs are still, quote, only 85. So if you're coming from where I went to college in Waco, Texas, like if it was 85 in July, that would be like such a blessing. 
Um, so it's all relative, but it was very, very fast. It was certainly fast. Like, I, it's very realistic to believe I could do this race for 10 more years and never go under nine again, even if I get significantly fitter. I guess my big takeaway is I think for most people that I coach or at least fast people in that sub nine range on any given course, I normally see them leaving a lot out there and that if we just tweak the way they pace and the way they eat, they're leaving minutes out there. I think if you did an FTP or like a one a lactic threshold test on me, swim, bike, and run, it would be pathetically low compared to the guys I was out there with. Um, so on the one hand, I think I got close to 100% of what I could possibly have done. On the other hand, there's not like 15 minutes sitting out there for me with like an easy just change of approach. It's, it's all fitness, um, which no doubt I'm 30, so I could probably improve my fitness for close to 10 more years. But it's a, it's a very different... Um, it's different than, I don't want to name names, but like people I see that j they got FTPs that are 50 watts higher than me and I can beat in an Ironman. Um, or they can destroy me in an Olympic distance and I can beat in an Ironman. And that's all pacing and nutrition. What about and power to weight? Power, well, I'm just saying like they just beat me head to head in an Olympic. Or, I mean, I got beat in Ventura in an Olympic distance trial. I mean, I got outbiked by this kid. He rode like a 52 and I rode like a 57 and he outbiked me in Kona by like two minutes. Um, and that's just not fading. That's doing the first hour the way I should have done it. And then increasing my Watts five Watts an hour throughout the day. Um, and riding the three, you can break the course up, but riding the parts that matter harder and the parts that don't chiller to save the most time. Um, and, so it's a little depressing in my mind that I did pretty much everything I could do and was like 10 minutes or 12 minutes off of the age group winner. But at the same time, like... What age group was he in? Oh, my. Oh, I mean, like my third. Your, your third, age group. Yeah, my yeah. age group. I think the overall amateur was like free. He was like 826. He was like Eight, 10 yeah. minutes ahead of second place. It's unreal. Yeah, there was one guy that was a standard deviation above everyone else. Yeah. So how did your bike split compared to others in your age group or overall amateurs? Um, like, did you come in under in the top 10 off the bike? or? Oh, God, no. So this is the other thing about Ironman racing. I feel like I'm a super even athlete. I swam under an hour, rode 439, and ran 308, and felt like I paced it super evenly. Like, none of those numbers are extremely fast. Um, but in an Ironman... I could have ridden 425, probably. Like, if I had just said, like, F this, I'm going to ride hard. I probably could have ridden 425 and then walked. Like, immediately just sat down for 20 minutes in T2. And a lot of people do that. Like, they just... So, I I think I came off the bike hundred and like 80th overall amateur and then ran up to 30th. Um, but more realistically, I if everybody paced it evenly... I probably should have come off the bike like 50th and run up to 30th. Yeah. Like, I think in your age group, you're around 50 or 60 off yeah. the bike. And then ran up to 14th. But yeah. I think that's, that is a product of pacing rather than what's really, um, like what's really my strength or my weakness. Cause I've never run great long distance, um, relative to my short distance either. 
So for those of you who follow Coach Matt on Instagram, what's your Instagram handle, by the way? Coach Matt Triathlon Engineer. You might have noticed that he had some rather disturbing videos posted on his story after the race was over. Um, you should go check those out if they're still available, but I don't know if they're gone by uh, now. I, I think I think they're on there. Yeah. They're, they're still like on permanent. there? Yeah. You put them as posts or were they posts, just I stories? Think, posts. I think Elfa did the story thing and then I okay. stole them. So, she filmed me when I wasn't looking. <laughs> so if you're a little bit squeamish, maybe give them a pass. But so obviously the bike was no big deal. Toes. But yeah, your toes got jacked up on that run, I assume. So I didn't, I did delete the toe thing. I thought he was talking about another story. Um, but yeah, I think I'm going to lose five, I think. Um, five, ten nails. Yes. And I, this is really gross, but I had some of the nicer feet of people I encountered. I'm losing more toenails, but the blisters and um, I feel like I got off a little, I got off pretty well. So, okay. So this confuses me because you obviously run a lot and I don't see pictures of you losing toenails all the time, even when you do long runs. So why is it that during a race like this, you would suddenly lose a huge number of toenails? Well, you swell up you swell up to the point where I can't get my foot in my shoe like a normal shoe after the race like that night um because you you start it's like an it's what your body does in that type of heat when you're working hard is you hold on to water desperately and when you're taking in all of that salt so you do like you couldn't see the bones in my feet for like three or four days after the race um like you swell up a tremendous amount so the foot is now a shoe size bigger and then Kona's a very hilly run. Like, again, it doesn't do it justice when you watch it, but there's nothing flat. Like, it's like, for those of you who live here, it's either running the 101 or doing the Elwood Hill for 26 miles. Just up that and down that, up that, and there's nowhere that is flat. So as much as I'm going uphill, which is very easy on my feet, you're running downhill. And then the last... I mean, I can't imagine what I looked like the last, like, six or seven miles. Like, honest to goodness, I, I just don't remember most of the race, of the last two hours of the race. Like, semi-blackout. Like, I have flash images of still shots of what was happening, but I don't remember most of it. So I can only imagine, like, how hard I'm slamming my feet. There's no form anymore, like, the last hour of the race. So I'm not running anything that looks like my normal run stride, I would imagine, on any of those downhills. So what is it about Ironman running that causes you to get to that state? Because, you know, there's other people in town here who have done ultra runs, 60 mile runs, shout outs to Rod, 30 mile runs regularly. And you don't ever see people do that and then say, oh, I, I don't actually remember the last hour, but they obviously <laughs> have run for times that are similar, but there's something about Ironman that makes it so much more taxing where you can just kind of not remember things afterwards. I think this will this is gonna make me sound a little pompous, but I talked to Sean about this. There's like an element of being able to like destroy yourself even when there's not a lot on the line. Like I realized at about mile eighteen I wasn't gonna get into fifth in my age group because I knew the three guys that were in the top. I knew three of the guys that were in the top five. It's like yeah, they're not gonna blow up. Like this is I'm not gonna catch them unless I run six flat for like five miles back in but continuing to just if you can it's like if somebody does an ultra marathon where they are matched up with somebody super evenly 
at the very start and they go race that for eight hours um i think then you would find a different scenario like where you're because i got past i got past at mile 22 and then i got past at mile 26.1 like they're still like you're literally racing the whole thing and i think there is an element to i saw so many people that went like 20 minutes slower than me on strava working out two days later and i couldn't get on my bike i just couldn't i couldn't my quad could not support myself to get onto my bike and as we talked about earlier, there's some delightful Instagram videos of you trying to get down the stairs. Is that the same day or was that the next day? That was the next day and then three days later. Okay, so even three days later, you could barely lift your leg, and so it was super hard to do any kind of Oh, incline. there's still, like, I'm injured. Like, my my quads are, I, I've heard pros call it torn quad syndrome, where it's probably going to take me two to three weeks. Man, that's crazy. get over it, but, like, I cannot, I... It sounds so pompous. I cannot overstate like how terrible the last two hours of that race were for me. Just how epically awful looking at your watch and being like, okay, if I run seven minute pace for the next 10 miles, I'll finish in 70 minutes or whatever. And then you start to slow down and you're like, oh, fuck. If I run eight minute pace, I got to do this for 10 fucking more minutes. (laughs) Well, and, I mean, it's, it, I think it's got to be crazy when you're trying to, like, turn yourself inside out, and that's for, like, seven-minute mile pace. Like, that's just different. I got to 26.1 and walked for, like, three steps, and I would never, like, a guy went by me that I had caught before and, like, yelled something at me, and I wanted to just be like, if you can go by me right now, then you left so much out. I looked him up later. He ran a 330. It's like, he ran a 330 and then outsprinted me in the last 200 yards. I'm like... You left so... I'm trying not to fall down. Like, I'm honest to God, just trying not to fall down the last mile. And I met so many people at the race that were like, yeah, we were... uh, There's a hill called Polani that you come down into the finish. Like, we were yelling at you and all of this stuff, and I have no... Elka feels really bad, but apparently she saw me twice in the last mile, and I don't remember either of it. Like, and she took a picture of me in the last mile, and I don't remember that at all. I think there's video of you coming in, isn't there? I don't remember it at all. Like... you're supposed to like take in the magic of that finish line and i do like one of the quick images i remember is getting to the carpet and just thinking like there's absolutely nothing magical about this like this is no different than anything else i've ever done except there are way more people looking at me right now and i can't fall down but that's the fun like that was the most fun thing of and that was the number one goal like the whole year was going into the race and being like you're going to, for once, just give 100% for nine hours. And the goal was nine hours. You're just going to not, anytime your mind wanders, you're going to go back to, I want to be collapsing within sight of the finish line. And that's the goal. Hopefully not 10 feet before the finish line. No, but I totally understand what people are talking about now when they're like, you, you're, you're kind of worried you're not going to make it. Because I'd never been worried I wasn't going to make it in a race before but it's also so hot you're like in a normal Ironman my heart rate's like 155 over the last um, from mile 22 on when I got overheated it was super high like I could feel it just thumping thumping very quickly in my uh, wrists and my thighs so are we talking Gordon high or are we talking like I didn't have a heart rate monitor on but it was like Olympic distance high it was like (laughs) it was really going and I think I was just because I was so overheated 
And isn't that also one of the first symptoms of dehydration or heat exhaustion? Yeah. That's the, your heart rate spikes. Um, yeah. It's pretty terrible, but also super fun. I recommend it. <laughs> I know. It's like, I was going to remind you like, Oh yeah. You did sign up for this for fun. You paid a bunch of money to feel like this. Honestly, the race that was so much more, so much better than the nerves of like the weeks before when you're kind of just like concerned that you're not going to be able to do that. Cause again, that's the goal is to just like go as hard as you possibly can. Um, that for some reason you're going to like get to mile 10 and decide that this isn't worth it, which I feel like we've all done at some point in an event where we like know that we let ourselves down by not pushing as hard as we could. And it's hard to do that when you're not racing for anything. And I honestly wasn't really racing for anything because I knew I wasn't going to get a bolt, like wasn't racing for a trophy anymore. Um, You're just, you're just doing it for yourself. And my math was so bad at that point. I did not know I was going to be under nine hours quite. I knew there was a good shot if I just like didn't sit down, but you're not really. Isn't that all it takes is knowing there's a shot? I guess. I I can't remember what I was thinking. I remember one very clear visual. One of the last memories I have was this German guy, one of the guys that passed me at mile 22. He passed me and just let out the biggest belch of all time. And I was like, oh, I need to eat something because I haven't burped in a while. And I took a gel out of my crotch and ate it. <laughs> That's a nice place to store gels. They just fall through. Like you put them in your suit and they just eventually work their way down. Doesn't your suit have pockets? Pockets are really difficult the last two hours of an Ironman. Really, really difficult. It's hard. It's just hard to like, I don't know how to explain it. It's just. Like your hands don't want to move. The extra effort of reaching behind you, finding the pocket, and then like getting your hand in that pocket versus just having it like right in what was my belt, but has now just fallen into my legs. Like. That's so much relief to know I don't have to reach back to my pocket to get it. I had these salt things in the sleeves of my arms, and I put them in there on the bike. I did have a bike problem. My bento box flew off, and it was flying off, so I got all the nutrition and like stuffed it where I could in my jersey, and then eventually it broke off, um, but I saved all the nutrition. The last two hours in the marathon, I couldn't get the salt stick out of my sleeve. Like, it's in there pretty tight because the kits are tight. And I remember trying and being like, I just can't, I can't fucking get it out. I'm just not going to do this anymore. Wow, that's crazy. Well, you definitely had a super impressive race. You ended up at what place overall? Uh, I was the 30-something amateur. 30-something amateur. And in your age group, you were 14th. 14th so yeah. I'm you were something peak, like yeah. 80th in the world. With the pros, yeah. 7th right. American. Seventh American, eightieth yeah. overall in the world, Wait, including professionals. The pros, yeah, American. I got beat by Tim O'Donnell, Matt Hansen, Andy Potts, Clay M G, uh, Matt Malone, and Ryan. I can't pronounce your last name, Ryan. It just so happened that the three other Americans who beat me were in my age group too. Of course, yeah, of course, <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway, so if you want to get professionally coached by this man here who just told us this amazing story of the Ironman, just give him a shout out and he will set you up and make you way faster than you ever thought could be possible. Now, the the other pros that did this race, well, okay, you weren't racing as a pro, but the pros that did this race, um, not all pros do super well at this race, right? Because the heat is this huge, huge yeah. factor. And so pros that might win at other races may not win here. 
So who won this time on the men's and women's sides? Uh, Patrick Lang, who only has two race victories in the last two years, and they're both at Kona. <laughs> That's incredible. Are you sure? I think so. He won three years ago. He won some races. He didn't win at all this year. So this is his first win since But I mean, Kona. he's losing to like really good people too, right? Like, oh, yeah. He's yeah. losing. People seek him out to race him, but it's still like... There's also an element of Iron Man where, like, I'll get beat by a guy that, say, at Santa Cruz, I would have beaten by five or more minutes and a half that'll then beat me in an Iron Man because there's just different physiologies, different training, different, like, what you're actually trying to be your best at. Um, Patrick Lang seems to be one of those guys that's running, like, not crazy fast in a half and then just doesn't slow down. Yeah. And Daniela Reef, who wins everything. She just always wins. Is there anyone who can even come close to her? No. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I would say relative, like Lucy Charles. Is yeah, I was going to say the announcers made it sound like it was a race, but yeah. Yeah, Lucy Charles was winning the bike through maybe like mile 80. Yeah, and that was a big... Daniela Reef got out of transition like well behind me, which she is, which is an obscene thing. She got stung by a jellyfish. Um, in the swim and end up swimming like 58 minutes and spending three or four minutes in transition. So she started the bike. Normally she would start the bike three or four minutes down. She started the bike like 12 minutes down. Yes, she had a lot of time to make up. Yeah. But I think she actually caught Lucy Charles at a similar point as she, she did. did in 2017. She hammered that bike. Yeah. So do you think that she altered her race strategy in order to account for the jellyfish? It seemed like she didn't. She was very patient. Mm-hmm. She made up the vast majority of her... She did the same... She was pretty chill for an hour, or she just rode steady, and it looked chill because all the other ladies were hauling for the first hour to race each other. Um, it looked like she just steadily picked it off, like just rode steady, and then as happens, as other people fade, she gains more and more and more and more and more and more time. So she returned to the lead partway through the bike, is that right? Yeah. 80, 90 miles in. Yeah, it was, yeah. It was, you know, it was still a little ways from T2, but, you know... It was near the end of the bike. What country is is she from? Switzerland. Yeah, Switzerland. Wow. Okay. And Patrick Lane is he uh, American? He's a German. German. We haven't had American win since two thousand three. It's been a while. Yeah, there's a bunch of Germans have won the last four years, maybe. There was an Aussie domination and then a German domination. Now, Sean, do you have hopes to one day do Kona in the full distance? Yeah, I suppose, especially after following it so much this year, it'd be really fun to do some point but uh definitely quite a ways from being ready in the pro field uh, and so as long as i'm pursuing it in that regard it, you know we got a ways to go have you done a full iron man before nope so that would probably be a good first step <laughs> <laughs> well you could always make connor your first iron man no no you, uh, no, you got to qualify oh okay well as an, I, I thought there were some rules at least for amateurs where you could certain 70.3s you could there's, still yeah, get a kona slot there's for. one or two 70.3s every year depending on how they uh you know celebrate an anniversary or whatever that they give kona slots to but for pros nope yeah and the way they they they're qualifying pros this year has changed so it'd be kind of interesting to kind of see how it you know shakes out over the next year or two how those slots are allocated but basically you have to win a race or have someone that beats you have won a race before so for the short term your plan is we're going to go full gas on 70.3s see how high you can go and then Maybe as you get a little bit older, get some more endurance, try to go for that longer stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, right now we're focusing on 7.3 because that's already been a step up from the Olympic distance racing I did as a collegiate. 
And so um, our training, we've increased volume. Um, and so it's taking my body a little while to adjust to that. But it's, you know, at this point, really starting to pay off. And that's making the 70.3 not feel like quite such a long race. Like when I first got into it, it was just such a different beast. But now I can actually really race it, you know, maybe how I used to race an Olympic in terms of like, it feels a little bit more like you're on the red line. Um, and then I think as we accumulate more volume in, in my legs, you know, in my body, the, the full distance might actually be, you know, not such a big step up. So, you know, me and Matt haven't talked in detail about it, but, you know, maybe next year, if not then, definitely the year after. Great, great. Anything else coming on the horizon soon besides uh, hits? Uh, yeah, so I, I actually race next weekend. Um, so I'll be in Waco, Texas. So visiting... Ooh, sick of bears. Yeah, visiting Matt's old uh, city where he's, he spent his undergrad at Baylor. I feel like given the history and the news of Waco, Texas and the whole crazy people okay, thing. Okay, that wasn't actually in Waco. That was in Elmont, but whatever. <laughs> there should be some kind of like gun-themed triathlon or something. It's like if someone went apeshit in Santa Inez and then Santa Barbara was forever associated with Santa Inez. It's like that far away. I actually don't even know what this is. <laughs> David Koresh, you're too young. This was a group of people who decided that they wanted to secede from the U.S. or whatever. They hold themselves up in a, a house with a bunch of guns, and the FBI came after them and raided them or something. A bunch of people died. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was a big... Uh, it was the. It was essentially the cause of the Oklahoma City bombing. So the o- Oklahoma City bombing was another crazy guy's um, trying to punish the government for invading the Koresh Foundation. In a nutshell, there's a lot more nuanced than that but in a nutshell before i get a letter <laughs> so the the thing i know waco through or what most people when i tell them i'm going to race there is magnolia market from uh the, the fixer fixer upper show yeah, they really changed the rep yeah so i've been told i have to see magnolia market while i'm there go to bed bath and beyond it's the same thing <laughs> All right. Well, that's all we got time for today. Thank you, Sean, for that great story. And thank you, Matt, for the really awesome uh, race report. We will be talking to these guys again next time, as always. And remember that the Instagram handle of uh, Sean is at Big Sean Harry. So you should definitely follow him on Instagram. And then we've got Coach Matt, triathlon engineer. Is that right? Yeah. On Instagram as well. So give him a follow. And (laughs) we will talk to you guys another time. Thanks a bunch.